welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion all your brothers and sisters in spirit. And I hope everyone spent a blessed holiday weekend with family and friends. And y'all radiated the loving energy of your mighty I Am presence all throughout the atmosphere. I certainly enjoy the quality time with my family and the breaking routine from the usual. But where that was not the case for some, if there was grief or love may have seemed lacking, May the love of the living God well up within those individuals and soothe their hearts, minds, and spirits and make clear the paths that may trouble them while blessing others with that overflow of loving energy. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and life. And y'all be loved. The great truth we are considering is the fundamental principle running through all religions. We find it in every one. In regard to it all agree. It is, moreover, a great truth in regard to which all people can agree, whether they belong to the same or to different religions. People always quarrel about the trifles, about their personal views of minor insignificant points. They always come together in the presence of great fundamental truths, the threads of which run through all. The quarrels are in connection with the lower self, the agreements are in connection with the higher self. A place may have its factions that quarrel and fight among themselves, but let a great calamity come upon the land, flood, famine, pestilence, and these little personal differences are entirely forgotten and all work shoulder to shoulder in the one great cause. The changing, the evolving self gives rise to quarrels, the permanent, the soul self unites all in the highest efforts of love and service. Patriotism is a beautiful thing, it is well for me to love my country, but why should I love my own country more than I love all others? If I love my own and hate others, I then show my limitations, and my patriotism will stand the test not even for my own. If I love my own country and in the same way love all other countries, then I show the largeness of my nature, and a patriotism of this kind is noble and always to be relied upon. The view of God in regard to which we are agreed that He is the infinite spirit of life and power that is back of all, that is working in and through all, that is the life of all, is a matter in regard to which all men, all religions can agree. With this view there can be no infidels or atheists. There are atheists and infidels in connection with many views that are held concerning God, and thank God there are. Even devout and earnest people among us attribute things to God that no respectable men or women would permit to be attributed to themselves. This view is satisfying to those who cannot see how God can be angry with his children, jealous, vindictive. A display of these qualities always lessens our respect for men and women and still, we attribute them to God. The earnest, sincere heretic is one of the greatest friends true religion can have. 
Heretics are among God's greatest servants. They are among the true servants of mankind. Christ was one of the greatest heretics the world has ever known. He allowed himself to be bound by no established or orthodox teachings or beliefs. Christ is preeminently a type of the universal. John the Baptist is a type of the personal. John dressed in a particular way, ate a particular kind of food, belonged to a particular order, lived and taught in a particular locality, and he himself recognized the fact that he must decrease while Christ must increase. Christ, on the other hand, gave himself absolutely no limitations. He allowed himself to be bound by nothing. He was absolutely universal and as a consequence taught not for his own particular day, but for all time. This mighty truth which we have agreed upon is the great central fact of human life is the golden thread that runs through all religions. When we make it the paramount fact in our lives, we will find that minor differences, narrow prejudices, and all these laughable absurdities will so fall away by virtue of their very insignificance, that a Jew can worship equally as well in a Catholic cathedral, a Catholic in a Jewish synagogue, a Buddhist in a Christian church, a Christian in a Buddhist temple or all can worship equally well about their own hearthstones, or out on the hillside, or while pursuing the avocations of everyday life. For true worship, only God and the human soul are necessary. It does not depend upon times, or seasons, or occasions. Anywhere and at any time God and man in the bush may meet. This is the great fundamental principle of the universal religion upon which all can agree. This is the great fact that is permanent. There are many things in regard to which all cannot agree. These are the things that are personal, non-essential, and so as time passes, they gradually fall away. One who doesn't grasp this great truth, a Christian, for example, asks but was not Christ inspired? Yes, but he was not the only one inspired. Another who is a Buddhist asks, was not Buddha inspired? Yes, but he was not the only one inspired. A Christian asks, but is not our Christian Bible inspired? Yes, but there are other inspired scriptures. A Brahmin or a Buddhist asks, are not the Vedas inspired? Yes, but there are other inspired sacred books. Your error is not in believing that your particular scriptures are inspired, but your error is, and you show your absurdly laughable limitations by it, your inability to see that other scriptures are also inspired. The sacred books, the inspired writings, all come from the same source, God, God speaking through the souls of those who open themselves that he may thus speak. Some may be more inspired than others. It depends entirely on the relative degree that this one or that one opens himself to the divine voice. Says one of the inspired writers in the Hebrew scriptures, Wisdom is the breath of the power of God and in all ages entering into holy souls, she maketh them friends of God and prophets. Let us not be among the numbers so dwarfed, so limited, so bigoted as to think that the infinite God has revealed himself to one little handful of his children, in one little quarter of the globe, and at one particular period of time. This isn't the pattern by which God works. Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that revereth God and worketh righteousness is accepted of him, says the Christian Bible. When we fully realize this truth, we will then see that it makes but little difference what particular form of religion one holds to, but it does make a tremendous difference how true he is to the vital principles of this one. In the degree that we love self, less, and love truth more, in that degree will we care less about converting people to our particular way of thinking, but all the more will we care to aid them in coming into the full realization of truth through the channels best adapted to them. The doctrine of our master, says the Chinese, consisted solely in integrity of heart. 
We will find as we search that this is the doctrine of everyone who is at all worthy the name of Master. The great fundamental principles of all religions are the same. They differ only in their minor details according to the various degrees of enfoldment of different people. I am sometimes asked, to what religion do you belong? What religion? Why, bless you, there is only one religion, the religion of the living God. There are, of course, the various creeds of the same religion arising from the various interpretations of different people, but they are all of minor importance. The more unfolded the soul the less important do these minor differences become. There are also, of course, the various so-called religions. There is in reality, however, but one religion. The moment we lose sight of this great fact we depart from the real, vital spirit of true religion and allow ourselves to be limited and bound by form. In the degree that we do this we build fences around ourselves which keep others away from us, and which also prevent our coming into the realization of universal truth, there is nothing worthy the name of truth that is not universal. There is only one religion. Whatever road I take joins the highway that leads to thee, says the inspired writer in the Persian scriptures. Broad is the carpet God has spread, and beautiful the colors he has given it. The pure man respects every form of faith, says the Buddhist. My doctrine makes no difference between high and low, rich and poor. Like the sky, it has room for all, and like the water, it washes all alike. The broad-minded see the truth in different religions, the narrow-minded see only the differences, says the Chinese. The Hindu has said, the narrow-minded ask, is this man a stranger, or is he of our tribe? But to those in whom love dwells, the whole world is but one family. Altar flowers are of many species, but all worship is one. Heaven is a palace with many doors, and each may enter in his own way. Are we not all children of one father? Says the Christian. God has made of one blood all nations, to dwell on the face of the earth. It was a latter-day seer who said, that which was profitable to the soul of man the father revealed to the ancients, that which is profitable to the soul of man today revealeth he this day. It was Tennyson who said, I dreamed that stone by stone I reared a sacred fane, a temple, neither pagoda, mosque, nor church, but loftier, simpler, always open door to every breath from heaven, and truth and peace and love and justice came and dwelt therein. Religion in its true sense is the most joyous thing the human soul can know, and when the real religion is realized, we will find that it will be an agent of peace, of joy, and of happiness, and never an agent of gloomy, long-faced sadness. It will then be attractive to all and repulsive to none. Let our churches grasp these great truths, let them give their time and attention to bringing people into a knowledge of their true selves, into a knowledge of their relations, of their oneness, with the infinite God, and such joy will be the result, and such crowds will flock to them, that their very walls will seem almost to burst, and such songs of joy will continually pour forth as will make all people in love with the religion that makes for everyday life, and hence the religion that is true and vital. Adequacy for life, adequacy for everyday life here and now, must be the test of all true religion. If it does not bear this test, then it simply is not religion. We need an everyday, a this world religion. All time spent in connection with any other is worse than wasted. The eternal life that we are now living will be well lived if we take good care of each little period of time as it presents itself day after day. If we fail in doing this, we fail in everything. In Tune with the Infinite, by Ralph Waldo Trine, 1910 
volume two, chapter three. Such and far more elevating were the ideas of Martian, the great heresiarch of the second century, as he is termed by his opponents. He came to Rome toward the latter part of the half-century, from AD 139-142, according to Tertullian, Irenaeus, Clemens and most of his modern commentators, such as Bunsen, Tischendorf, Westcott, and many others. Credner and Schleiermacher agree as to his high irreproachable personal character, his pure religious aspirations and elevated views. His influence must have been powerful, as we find Epiphanius writing more than two centuries later that in his time the followers of Martian were to be found throughout the whole world. The danger must have been pressing and great indeed, if we are to judge it to have been proportioned with the opprobrious epithets and vituperation heaped upon Martian by the great African, that patristic Cerberus, whom we find ever barking at the door of the irony and dogmas. We have but to open his celebrated refutation of Martian's antithesis, to acquaint ourselves with a fine flur of monkish abuse of the Christian school, an abuse so faithfully carried through the Middle Ages, to be renewed again in our present day at the Vatican. Now then, ye hounds, yelping at the God of truth, whom the apostles cast out, to all your questions. These are the bones of contention which ye gnaw, etc. The poverty of the great African's arguments keeps pace with his abuse, remarks the author of Supernatural Religion. There, the father's, religious controversy bristles with misstatements, and is turbid with pious abuse. Tertullian was a master of his style, and the vehement vituperation with which he opens and often interlards his work against the impious and sacrilegious Martian, offers anything but a guarantee of fair and legitimate criticism. How firm these two fathers, Tertullian and Epiphanius, were on their theological ground, may be inferred from the curious fact that they intemperately both vehemently reproached the beast, Martian, with erasing passages from the Gospel of Luke which never were in Luke at all. The lightness and inaccuracy, adds the critic, with which Tertullian proceeds, are all the better illustrated by the fact that not only does he accuse Martian falsely, but he actually defines the motives for which he expunged a passage which never existed. In the same chapter he also similarly accuses Martian of erasing, from Luke, the saying that Christ had not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, and he actually repeats the charge on two other occasions. Epiphanius also commits the mistake of reproaching Martian with omitting from Luke what is only found in Matthew. Having so far shown the amount of reliance to be placed in the patristic literature, and it being unanimously conceded by the great majority of biblical critics that what the fathers fought for was not truth, but their own interpretations and unwarranted assertions, we will now proceed to state what are the views of Martian, whom Tertullian desired to annihilate as the most dangerous heretic of his day. H. P. Blavatsky If we are to believe Hilkenford, one of the greatest German biblical critics, then from the critical standing point one must, consider the statements of the fathers of the church only as expressions of their subjective view, which itself requires proof. We can do no better nor make a more correct statement of facts concerning Martian than by quoting what our space permits from supernatural religion, the author of which bases his assertion on the evidence of the greatest critics, as well as on his own research. He shows in the days of Martian, two broad parties in the primitive church, one considering Christianity a mere continuation of the law and dwarfing it into an Israelitish institution, a narrow sect of Judaism, the other representing the glad tidings as the introduction of a new system, applicable to all, and supplanting the mosaic dispensation of the law by a universal dispensation of grace. These two parties, he adds, 
were popularly represented in the early church, by the two apostles Peter and Paul, and their antagonism is faintly revealed in the epistle to the Galatians. Martian, who recognized no other gospels than a few epistles of Paul, who rejected totally the anthropomorphism of the Old Testament, and drew a distinct line of demarcation between the old Judaism and Christianity, viewed Jesus neither as a king, Messiah of the Jews, nor the son of David, who was in any way connected with the law or prophets, but, a divine being sent to reveal to man a spiritual religion, wholly new and a God of goodness and grace hitherto unknown. The Lord God of the Jews in his eyes, the Creator, Demiurgus, was totally different and distinct from the deity who sent Jesus to reveal the divine truth and preach the glad tidings, to bring reconciliation and salvation to all. The mission of Jesus, according to Martian, was to abrogate the Jewish Lord, who was opposed to the God and Father of Jesus Christ as matter is to spirit, impurity to purity. Was Martian so far wrong? Was it blasphemy, or was it intuition, divine inspiration in him to express that which every honest heart yearning for truth, more or less feels and acknowledges? If in his sincere desire to establish a purely spiritual religion, a universal faith based on unadulterated truth, he found it necessary to make of Christianity an entirely new and separate system from that of Judaism, did not Martian have the very words of Christ for his authority? No man putteth a piece of new cloth into an old garment, for the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish, but they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. In what particular does the jealous, wrathful, revengeful God of Israel resemble the unknown deity, the God of mercy preached by Jesus, his Father who is in heaven, and the Father of all humanity? This Father alone is the God of spirit and purity, and, to compare him with the subordinate and capricious Sinaitic deity is an error. Did Jesus ever pronounce the name of Jehovah? Did he ever place his Father in contrast with this severe and cruel judge, his God of mercy, love, and justice, with the Jewish genius of retaliation? Never. From that memorable day when he preached his Sermon on the Mount, an immeasurable void opened between his God and that other deity who fulminated his commands from that other mount, Sinai. H.P. Blavatsky The I Am Discourses, Volume 16 There will always be one or more of the angelic host in attendance upon that which is constructive until it becomes a thing manifested to fulfill the divine plan. And it is the way and means the cosmic law has established to create that which is constructive, sustain it, expand it, protect it, and let it act to glorify the universe with its almighty love and ever-expanding perfection. The way and means by which that perfection is manifested is the service and the action and the love and the gift of the angelic host. So, when you see a magnificent civilization built, you will never know until you are ascended how limitless are the legions of the angelic host that were the inspiring ideas and love and beauty that enable that civilization to come into existence. Don't think for one moment, beloved ones, that the magnificent blessings of a civilization are just the intellectual handiwork of mankind. That's ridiculous. Everything that is of greater good is lowered into this octave by the assistance of the angelic host. So it's just about time mankind is awakened and compelled to realize the great beings that have assisted life in this world throughout the ages past, and are here now to help dissolve and consume some of mankind's frightful generation of evil. 
What do you think the healing angels do? There isn't a focus of healing power anywhere in existence, that at the inner level there is not some one or more of the healing angels that pour the sacred fire of their love, the streams of their life energy, their purifying power of the sacred fire to bring about that healing. Over every hospital there are groups of the healing angels. And therefore, when mankind's sincere call goes to God for help, that help is given by the angelic host. I could talk indefinitely upon the activities of the angelic host, and we hope, with this messenger's cooperation, we may reveal some of this in your pageants and the productions that are to come. We hope to bring the illumination to the rest of the world that is certainly needed. It is time the door was opened by conscious understanding of the law, that the help might come, and some love and gratitude rise from mankind to those great legions who have assisted throughout the centuries the embodiments of those in this world. Beloved Archangel Michael, So dear ones, now let us take this up concerning your loved ones and all that you hold near and dear. When you ask for that protection, how do you think that is given? The force sent forth, the love sent forth, the energy and the protection are all, each one, a flame of the love from your mighty I am presence own heart, and the love from the heart flame of some, one or more, of the angelic host, depending upon that which is needed. While I am recognized in many channels of the outer world, yet people do not understand me. They do not understand the service I render. They are aware of so little of how the great blessings and help of God come to the people of earth. But now it is time for the education of the world to be increased. And the illumination of the intellect of man, and the purification of the emotional bodies of the people must take place now by the sacred fire the angelic host wield, and the fulfillment of the divine plan given a chance to manifest in this world its blessings that raise all, even the earth itself into the ascended master's octave. So blessed ones, at any time you are aware of our presence, or want to be aware of our presence, call to your beloved I am presence and to us to make you feel ourselves and let you understand what service we can render, what blessings we can bestow, what perfection we can manifest, and what assistance we can give to all in the attainment of the ascension. May you, the I am student body, come closer and closer into conscious recognition of the angelic host, and have the blessings we are so ready to give, and which I assure you, you can easily use in the outer world. May my love prove itself to you and bear witness through the fulfillment of my words tonight by your own experiences, as you care to experiment with your calls for closer cooperation between mankind and the angelic host. And may our love ever reveal to you the greater glories that the angelic host bring to this world and the infinite universe around you. Thank you with all my heart. Beloved Archangel Michael, Thank you.